Very excited about uh, beginning First Peter. I had prayed about whether or not the Lord may want me to share kind of a memorial uh, message for, related to Pastor Chuck, and I just didn't feel like we were supposed to do that. And I just really started thinking about what Pastor Chuck would probably say. He'd probably say, you know, stay the course. Um, continue to do what you've always done. What you've always done is what the people have needed, and that's why Jesus told us to do it. So be faithful to it. So we're going to continue doing what we've always done, going through the Word, and and um, and hopefully we will um, enjoy everything that God wants us to enjoy as we go through His Word. First Peter chapter one. Let's begin in verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your amazing word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given it a a very important place in our lives as your disciples. And Lord, we are grateful that we get to turn to it anytime we want to and have it speak the things that we need it to speak to our lives. We're grateful that it doesn't change We're grateful that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We're grateful that it'll outlive the heavens and the earth. We're grateful that it'll accomplish the purpose to which it is sent to accomplish. And Lord, we want it to fashion our lives by your Holy Spirit. We want to be made more like Jesus as a result of it. We don't want to look into the mirror of your word and forget what we look like. We want to be changed, convicted, and molded and fashioned into the image of Christ. Would you do that now through our lives as we yield our hearts to you, wanting to hear not just hear your word, but obey it. We commit it to you. We pray that you'd set this time aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I always love starting a new book for many reasons. It's time to get convicted in a new way. <laughs> it's time to uh, have the Lord deal with me throughout the week. There's a lot of preparation that has to go into coming up here and teaching the word of God, and the main preparation is in my heart. To allow the Lord to have its, his work in my heart through the, through the verses first to make any corrections or changes in, in my own life by his spirit so that I can have uh, some sense of credibility or boldness in coming up and proclaiming it. Now, as we've just finished um, the book of James, we've seen that God uses 
the people that wrote the Bible in very specific ways. Just like he uses all of our lives before we came to know Christ, he has this little bowl there and, and, he, and he just puts in different ingredients into our lives and he's, he's making something. And sometimes we're not aware of how much he uses those circumstances in our lives until after we come to know him and then we realize wow, he was working in my life even before I came to know him, and he made me into the person that he's made me to be for a specific reason. Well, all of that, those ingredients goes into these apostles or these writers of the scriptures too. God used very specific experiences in their lives to mold them and shape them. They weren't just robots writing out scripture. God used their experiences. He used their trials. He used their triumphs. He used these different experiences in their lives so to make him into the people that, he's, that he called them to be and to write the things that he called them to write by his spirit. So we saw that James was the half-brother of Jesus and spent, you know, 30 years with Christ before he came and started his public ministry. And God used all those things in his life, and we looked at a lot of those characteristics as we went through the book of James. But now as we start First Peter, now we're looking at an entirely different person who's a real person. We looked at that last week. We look at the kind of a biography of, of Peter, how he first met the Lord and, and his failures and, and all these things, his victories and so forth. And, and, and so that, all of that goes into how God used Peter to write this book uh, for our benefit. Peter was born in uh, Bethsaida there on the shore of, of Galilee. He was he was living, though, as an adult in Capernaum. He had a fishing business. He and his brother Andrew, along with uh, John and his, his brother James. And in John chapter 1, as we saw last week, the first encounter that Peter had with the Lord Jesus was through his brother Andrew. Andrew was stated as one of John uh, the Baptist's disciples. Likely Peter was too. They were down in the south there in Judea, far away from the, the northern part of Israel, the Galilee there. And they were there listening to John the Baptist. That was quite a distance. It was, it was expensive. You're taking days off from the fishing business to do that. And, and Andrew brings uh, Peter to Jesus. And, and, and Peter's encounter with the Lord Jesus is very profound. Because Jesus, first thing he says to him is he changes his name. You'll be called Cephas, Peter, which means a small stone. And that was... He's, he, that was, as we saw, designed to dis describe to him, I'm changing, I'm in the process of changing who you are. I'm in the process of bringing you towards a destination. His name would mean a small stone, someone that is dependable. Now, we know later on, when uh, the Lord Jesus said, who do, who do men say that I am, that Peter received a revelation. And he, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the Lord Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which art in heaven. And so he said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we saw that there was two different meanings for the word rock there. Peter's name means small stone. But when he said, upon this rock I will build my church, he specifically spoke of a boulder. And you see the distinction in the Greek there. And he was saying, the bolder, the much bigger rock, the, the, the confession that you're making that I'm the Messiah, upon that, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Peter, again, like I said, was a fisherman. And Jesus said when he called him publicly, as we saw last week, he called him publicly while he was fishing. And he said, I will make you a fisher, I'll make you all fishers of men. 
And that really wraps up a lot of what the, being a disciple is all about. The word disciple means a learner, a, an understudy, or an apprentice, or someone that learns something on the job, so to speak. And these disciples were learning how to basically let the world know that the kingdom of God was at hand and that they needed to believe the gospel. And, and so here we see the, the totality or, or the main thrust of the purpose of being a disciple when he says, I will make you fishers of men. He would make Levi, or later to become Matthew, a tax collector, a fisherman too. It wasn't just, just fishermen that had a background. I mean, he didn't say to, to I'll make you a, a taxer of men, you know, to, to Matthew. You know, I mean, these people had these different backgrounds, and he still said, I'm going to call you to, to make people, uh, to, I mean, call you to, to catch men, to catch men and to save their souls. And so that's what will help us understand this whole epistle of Peter and even the second epistle of Peter, because these Jews to whom he's writing were involved in very specific things, Jewish Christians, and they were suffering as a result of the Great Commission. Peter was also part of the, the, the inside three, or however people word it, you know, the, the privileged three, Peter, James, and John, where Jesus would take them and bring them to very specific places, and he would reveal things to them that he didn't reveal to the other disciples. And we're not told why. We don't want to read into silence. We're not told why. But he nevertheless brought them, and Peter was one of those, and so he saw some things that the other disciples didn't see. Being someone raised from the dead, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. There's other examples as well where Peter, James, and John were uh, brought to see and be exposed to very specific things. Also, Jesus uh, allowed Peter to walk on water. Remember that when he's walking on the water there and he says, bid me to come out to you. And he says, come. Well, I didn't think, I expect him to say that, to come out to him. I mean, and he did. And, he, and then he starts to sink, but at least he got out of the boat. A lot of things that he did, but he had failures too. Soon after he told the Lord Jesus, or he had told the Lord Jesus that he was the Messiah, he said that Jesus isn't going to go to the cross when Jesus said that. And, and the Lord Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you are mindful of the things of men, not of the things of God. And as I said, you know, and as it's been said, you know, that's a rough start for a pope, you know, uh, to, uh, to be called Satan, you know, and, and, but he wasn't tapped into what Jesus was there for at that moment. And, and, and so he very clearly uh, rebukes him there. And we're also told that he lopped off the servant of the high priest's ear, Malchus's ear, when they went to arrest Jesus. And Jesus, you know, patient as he was, grabbed that ear and put that back on his head. Peter, I don't need your help right now. This is, he still wasn't getting it. He still was trying to defend the Lord Jesus. But I think most famously, his denial of the Lord three times would be, at least in his mind for sure, would be the failure that eclipsed all other failures in his life. To think that he would deny the Lord three times. He had so much confidence in himself. And he said, though all would deny you, I would never deny you. And the Lord Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And so he, he did that. But then he wept bitterly, he repented, and the Lord Jesus restored him. Peter's life was impulsive and self-dependent. Those are the two words that wrap up his life, describe his life before he was born again, before he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. But the beautiful thing is we see the after. We see the changed life. 
Those of us that know the Lord, we know what God can do in a life. We know our own lives, how he can change us. And after Peter had given his life over to the Lord, after he'd been filled with the Spirit, you see him lead the church in many ways. And he was the one that preached the gospel and thousands came to know Christ there on the day of Pentecost there. The occasion around which this letter was written has a lot to do with persecution. And it has a lot to do with difficulty and trials and hardship. In AD 64, the emperor uh, Nero started really persecuting Christians. He covered them in tar, lit them on fire, and used them as lamps in his garden while he rode around in a chariot naked in his garden. He was going out of his mind. He, and he blamed the, the fire in Rome that, that almost destroyed the whole city to believers. And he started this big wave of persecution and it started in Rome and, and, and carried its way out all the way through the Roman Empire. And so both First and Second Peter were meant by the Spirit to be an, an, an amazing and a huge encouragement to the people of God. So often people will be discouraged and people, other believers that know about First and Second Peter will recommend it. Read First and Second Peter. You're going through a hardship. You're going through a trial. Um, this is what you need to read. And, and as it's been said, you know, the, some of the books that impact us the most in trials become our greatest friends in the scriptures. That book and Peter and how God used him to write it could be a huge encouragement to us because what it does is it provides needed perspective. That's what we need, right? When we're going through difficult times and hard times and, we're, and many of us are going through that right now. We're going through difficult times. What the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives in this, anytime we're going through a trial and preemptively protecting us in the future, for the future trials that are coming is to give us an eternal, heavenly perspective. One of the most powerful things we can do to help believers, to help our brothers and sisters, is to help them see their circumstances from God's vantage point. Because that's really the only vantage point that matters is his vantage point, how he sees things, how he sees things matters. What if the whole entire time Job could see things from God's perspective and what he was going to do, what he had planned, how the whole thing went down with Satan asking permission to, to, to interfere with his life and so forth and, and God's perspective about what he was going to do to bless Job at the end. What if he could have seen that? See, we have the vantage point of Scripture in so many ways that many of these people that we see in the Bible didn't have. We have the whole panoply of Scripture. We have the whole entire book, Genesis to Revelation, upon which to build our faith. And so here are these, these Jewish believers, and, and he's writing to people that were in modern-day Turkey there, these cities that he lists in verse 1. And he's trying to encourage them, get your eyes off your circumstances and put them on God. And, help, and I want to help you see the, the, what you have eternally and what is your inheritance there. And so it provides a very needed uh, perspective in times of discouragement. Because in difficult times, we lose perspective. It's very easy. And those are the times we need perspective the most. And those are the times, if we don't have perspective, we pay the highest price because we don't have God's perspective. So this, this book is going to be a huge encouragement to those of us going through trials and difficulties. And so may the Spirit use it for that purpose. Now let's begin in verse 1. He begins with stating who he is, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And they would begin letters by stating their name because the letters were in scroll form. 
Today we look at a letter, we know who it's from immediately, but in those days you'd have to undo the whole scroll before you see who's writing it. So he, would, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle means one who is sent. The apostles were sent, just like we're sent. We're, we're sent to preach the gospel, to be salt and light in this world. And so he begins there by saying, Peter, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent. Now, Peter's main ministry was in Jerusalem and was in Israel there. We don't have a lot of record of him moving around a whole lot. I mean, I know he died in Rome, but here we have him saying, I'm sent. Even though I didn't leave my countrymen, I was still sent. And some of us may never be sent to Asia. We may never be sent to Mexico. We may never be sent to Switzerland or whatever place that we see other believers be sent. But he's called us to be a missionary wherever we're at. He's called us to represent him, to be an ambassador for him. And so that requires someone that looks different. That requires us living a life that looks like Christ. And we know we can't accomplish that in our own strength. We need God's grace and his power to do it. He says, to the pilgrims, you didn't know there was other pilgrims beside those that came to this country, did you? To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is a good reminder. These, these people were sent out. I mean, they were, they were scattered. And that's what he's wanting them to see. When you see the word dispersion there, it's talking about scattering like you would disperse seeds. And that's what happened with persecution. Even way before this, you know, 30 years before this, the first people were persecuted by Saul. And they were, they, it says they were scattered all over the place because they weren't leaving. Jesus said, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. And they weren't going, so he scattered them like seed. So by the Spirit, Peter is saying, it is not by accident that you are where you are, that because of persecution you ended up where you ended up. You've been planted, you've been scattered like seed. And you are pilgrims. That's the first encouragement he gives them. This isn't your home. We're told in, in the New Testament that we're, our citizenship is in heaven. We have documents in heaven that demonstrate that we are his and, and he is ours, that, we're, that heaven is our home. That's our real home. So he's saying, don't think that you are here and this is your primary place of residency. It's not. We're just passing through. And that's helpful for us in our affluent nation. Even in times of trial, even in times of bad economies, we are still living far beyond anything that much of the world is living. And so he's, it's easy for us to think, well, I just need to get comfortable here. God wants me to be comfortable and have pleasure and so forth. And, and that's not what the, the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that we're pilgrims, that we're on our way to heaven, and we may or may not have uh, financial wealth or whatever, but we are in the places that God has placed us to be. Now, verse 2, he calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So he calls them elect. What does that mean? Being elect means that God has chosen us and appointed us to bear fruit. And, and so God oversees our salvation. He's, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And we're told Peter's going to say uh, soon, he's going to say that God is willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance. So he wants to save everybody. But how can he want to save everybody if, if there's certain people he chooses? 
See, now we get into the whole controversy of predestination and free will and so forth. And what I love about uh, churches that, you know, stick with the scriptures as best as they know how is that sometimes you, it, it's revealed as you study the scriptures that God's teaching two things that appear to be contradictory, but they're not contradictory. Now, election and free choice, and because he does hold us accountable for our choices related to salvation. He's not going to bring everybody and raise everybody up that doesn't know the Lord in their in physical bodies to be judged at the great white throne judgment and hold them accountable for that choice if they had no capacity to choose. We don't believe that. They had the capacity. He holds them responsible. It wouldn't be fair, wouldn't be just if he punished people for all eternity if they didn't have the capacity to choose. So we do have that responsibility, but we're also elected. We're also chosen. How does he do that? They appear to be contradictory. What the beautiful thing is, because they're linked to God, they're super logical. They transcend our logic and our reasoning. They're attached to him, and he can do it. And I find no place in the scriptures where we're told to understand how he does it. He just says that we're elected, and he says that we have to believe. He never tells us to reconcile those things. I challenge you. Find one verse where he challenges us to, to reconcile those things and understand fully how he does those things. You won't find it. Jesus elected us. He chose us. And he, we're told in verse 2, according to his foreknowledge. He knew exactly who would choose him. Now, is that the only basis upon which he elected us? Absolutely not. He can have reasons far beyond anything we ever know about. The point is, is that in part, at least, he elected us according to his foreknowledge. He knew who would choose him. Remember, he's outside of time. It's like if when you watch a a parade from a skyscraper and you look down, you see the beginning of the parade and you see the end of the parade all at the same time. But those that are on the street level looking at the parade, they only see one vantage point. And that's a great way. Of course, I didn't come up with it. That's why it's good. (laughs) But that's a great way to understand how God sees everything. He's outside of time. It's not like he, there's a chronological events where he looked ahead, saw that we would choose, and then make that decision based on that. Because he's, he's there in the future as much as he's there in the past and there in the present all at the same time. So he makes his choices perfectly. And he wants election. And, and election is only spoken of in the context of comforting believers. You'll never see the, the, the disciples or anyone else preach the gospel and get all into election and predestination with unbelievers. You won't see it. It's all on them. Look, Think of, you have... Uh, in John chapter 3, verse 3, Nicodemus is there with the Lord Jesus. And he's talking about all of what's required. And unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about God's sovereignty, election, nothing. He's talking about it's man's responsibility to believe. And same with John three sixteen, All the responsibility. It talks about God's love and offering that salvation. But it's still, the emphasis is put on belief. In the context of unbelievers, belief is always emphasized. But when you're talking about family discussions, this is a family discussion. You know, you have those in your home, just privately with the family. This is, this is what we're talking about here. Family discussions in those in the body of Christ. He says, I've elected you, I've chosen you. And it's supposed to mean something. It's supposed to have value in our lives. It's supposed to bring comfort and perspective because what are the endless implications to being chosen? is that he's going to provide for us. He's going to be faithful to us. He's going to see us to the end. He's going to bring us every step of the way. He's the author and finisher of our faith. All those things contribute to us having needed perspective, having hope, and having our focus in the place that it should be. And he knows it. 
So he says, according to God's foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. It's talking about a one time being set apart by the Spirit when we came to know Christ. There is a process of becoming more like Christ as we talk about sanctification, but this is talking about the, the moment of conversion. There is a moment of conversion. It's not just, well, you're like 30% saved on Wednesday, and then by Friday you're 65% saved, and then 100% saved on Saturday, and you're ready for Sunday. He doesn't slowly put the Spirit in us a little bit, and then a little bit further he puts the you know, it, it happens in a moment in time. Our understanding of of when we came to know the Lord may change in terms of, well, I don't know when that moment happened, but as far as God's concerned, he knows the nanosecond that it happened when we placed our faith in Christ alone to pay our way to heaven. And so at that moment, the Spirit himself set us apart. He said, this is for God's use now. You're special, you're holy, you've been set aside for his purposes. And because of that, everything else is relevant related to the scriptures but he says for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ saved us he purchased us with his blood and the old testament high priest would go into the holy of holies once a year sprinkle blood on the mercy seat there it's a beautiful picture these Jews knew exactly what he was getting to here Peter was a very was a consummate Jew I mean he knew the scriptures and here he comes and he says, this, is, this election is accomplished in, 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 in many different aspects, or God does it in many different ways. I don't know if you notice the Trinity there in verse 2, but he talks about the Father, he talks about the Spirit, he talks about Jesus Christ all in one verse. So we've, been, we've had the Father chose us, we've had the Spirit separate us, and we've had the Son cleanse us. All three were involved. All three persons in the one God, Godhead, were involved in our being set apart. And he's saying, look, you're discouraged. You're going through persecution. You're suffering. All three of the Godhead were involved in, in, in having you be elect. And that should encourage you. That should give you needed perspective. Now, Peter adds at the end of verse 2, he says, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace be multiplied. And this is a common greeting from in the early church, and Paul uses this a lot, grace means unmerited favor, undeserved favor, and that was a common greeting in the Gentile world. They'd come up to you and say grace to you. In other words, have a day better than you deserve. Next time someone greets you on the street, go ahead and say that. Have a day better than you deserve. You know, get a look from them. But that was a common greeting. And also peace is a great greeting, and the Jews always greeted that way. Shalom, which means peace. So he married those together, but the, the order is always the same. Grace is always listed first and then peace because we can never experience the peace of God until we first experience the grace of God. This world's trying to get peace so hard with all their self-effort, but they're not going the way that God said. You have to go my way and accept my grace first in your life and then I will give you peace. And then I like what he ended at the end, added at the end of verse 2. Let it be multiplied. Paul never said that. He says, let it be multiplied in your in your life. And that's God's desire for each one of our lives. He also says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now this word blessed at the beginning of verse 3, it, it's not the typical word that we usually have for blessed, which means oh how happy. It's literally meaning talking about praise. It's the word from which we get our word eulogize. And when you're doing a eulogy, you speak well of somebody. You're praising them, right? 
He's saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be unto the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy. I would be happy just by reading that God has mercy for me. But then he adds to it abundant mercy. According to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. He's talking about the spiritual birth that happens when we're born spiritually. We have a, a, a birth when we're born physically. And then the second birth comes when we're born spiritually. Maybe you're here today. You've never had that second birth. You've had the physical birth. That's why you're here. Be a neat trick if you were here and you hadn't been. But you have to have a spiritual birth. And that happens in a moment in time when you recognize you're a sinner, you've been less than perfect, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid that full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of your sins. And so he took the wrath that you deserved, and he died and he rose again bodily from, from the grave. When you trust in that alone to pay your way to heaven and not in anything you can do religiously, and you turn from the way that you're living, you turn to God, he comes in and he gives you a spiritual birth. And he takes your dead spirit, he makes it alive, and puts the Holy Spirit inside of your life. That's what being born again is. And he's saying that God should be praised because through his abundant mercy, he has borne us again or begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He's saying, you believers that are suffering right now, you're going through persecution. You don't have an earthly hope. You're a pilgrim. You're passing through. And you can be assured that you're going to live with God forever because of the resurrection of Christ. We don't have a dead hope. Every major religion right now is following a dead hope because their founder is in the grave. Our founder is in heaven, interceding for us as our great high priest. So we don't have a dead hope. We have a living hope because Jesus rose from the dead. You're going through a lot of persecution right now, but... All that, all that you're going through pales in comparison to what you have in Christ. Now notice we're born again and saved and elected to something in verse 4. He says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Notice the word to, the beginning of the verse. We're saved to something. Now when you're suffering and you're going through incredible hardship and persecution, that means something. And maybe many of them have lost their earthly inheritance. They've been displaced. They've lost family. Maybe they've lost their inheritance. Maybe their, you know, maybe their inheritance has been corrupted and been defiled and have faded away. And he says that your inheritance, your spiritual inheritance, inheritance that Jesus promises us, that's not going away. No matter what man does to you, no matter how great you're persecuted, nobody can mess with your inheritance. It's incorruptible. Nobody can corrupt it. All that we have in Christ Jesus, all that we're going to get someday when we meet him, all the treasure that he's going to bless us with, all the rewards he's going to give us. I mean, just go through Revelation and look at the description of the New Jerusalem. I mean, just all that we're going to receive. And notice inheritance is a, is a very important word here because it's not something that's owed them. There wouldn't be inheritance. Nobody pays for inheritance. You don't, hey, let me pay you, Dad, for uh, the inheritance that I'm going to get. Can I buy some inheritance? You don't do that. Inheritance is given by virtue of who you are. 
So because we are his children, we are sons of the kingdom, we are co-heirs with Christ, we have this great inheritance, and nothing can get in the way of that inheritance. It's incorruptible. And he says in verse 4, it's undefiled. It's perfect. It hasn't been corrupted by anybody, and it's perfect and holy and pure. And he says it does not fade away. It's reserved. We have inheritance in heaven that's been reserved just for us. It's individualized. It's not just, well, here's the Christian, my, you know, Christianity, those that are receiving salvation, this is their inheritance as a group. This is their collective inheritance. This is very individualized. It's been reserved just for me in heaven. And that brings very needed uh, encouragement. So not only is our inheritance being kept for us, but also notice in verse 5, we're being kept for our inheritance. He says, who, that's us, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. And I want to stop there. Not only is he keeping our inheritance, but he's keeping us for our inheritance. Because what would we naturally say, if we're being honest with ourselves, if it was up to us? (laughs) Well, yeah, my inheritance is safe, but I'm going to mess it up, and I'm going to not be able to get it, because I'm going to mess something up somehow. He says, no, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to keep you where you need to be as you rely upon me. And I will give you all that is coming your way. I will keep you by by the power of God through faith for salvation. Now, this salvation he mentions in the middle of verse 5 is talking about when we get our physical bodies. We already have salvation now, of course. We're saved. There's different descriptions of being saved in the New Testament. We have been saved in the sense that we've received salvation. We are being saved in the scriptures because we're in the process of being delivered from this world to heaven, being pilgrims, but also it talks about us someday receiving salvation in the sense of being physically delivered to heaven and given our new bodies and and also our inheritance. That's what he's talking about, our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice. We do. We rejoice. We rejoice in the fact that he's kept everything for us and it's waiting there for us and and that it will be revealed at the proper time. But then he gives us a little thing that we have to deal with here in the meantime. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So it's not just persecution here. It's other trials. Jesus said, in this life you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He was upfront with us. He was honest. He shot straight with us. <laughs> it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And he says, you're going to get this salvation. You're going to be kept for heaven, and you're going to get a new body. You're going to be in heaven with me for all eternity. But in the meantime, you're going to go through some things for a little while. Notice he says, a little while. Well, it doesn't feel like a little while. <laughs> you know, I'm just going through hardship now, and it's kind of tough. And It is for a little while. Compare what we go through. Compare our whole life. Let's say we live to be 120. Think of that in light of eternity. I saw Francis Chan in a video one time have this long rope. And he threw this rope out. And it was really, really long. And he painted the last part of it red. And he said, the little part that's red, that represents our life. And Jesus says to live for all of that. And then people say we're stupid because we live for the 
for, for all of that when they're living for this little bit. He goes, no, I'm not stupid. You're stupid because I wanna, I'm living for all of that. You're living for this, this little, little time, this little vapor as we saw in the last book that we studied in the book of James. Our lives are vapors. Here today, gone tomorrow. And so he says, this is what you need to rejoice about, that I have prepared heaven for you and I'm preparing you for heaven. And so, yes, you go through tribulation and trials for a little while, if need be. Notice that. If need be. God determines that. There is a need that he has to bring us through trials because he knows that trials brings us into maturity. It produces patience. Patience must finish its works that we may be complete, not lacking anything. So he knows that it's in our best interest to go through these things to make us more like Christ. So yes, if need be, he says that's, that's true, but he says you've been grieved by various trials. And that's what he's trying to encourage them with. Yes, you've been grieved. You're grieving right now. You're sorrowing over what you're going through. But look at what you're going to get. This is just for a little time. So this isn't a hopeless situation. And that's what we can think at times. We're, we're in a hopeless situation. It's not, if you're a child of God, it's not hopeless. You're right with God. If you were to die, you're going to be with him. He's not wasting anything that's going on in your life for his purposes. He's going to use it and, and, and use it for your good. And that should be an encouragement to us. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the word genuineness. No, not by accident he brings up the word gold. Because when, when, when heat is applied to gold, it just makes it more pure. And that's the picture. They were, always, they were very familiar with what, gold, what would happen in gold if, it was, if fire was applied to it. This, wasn't, this was very clear to them. And they knew this. And so he's saying, just like fire is used as a purifying agent for gold, your faith is being purified by these trials. It's making these, your trials I mean, these trials are making your faith be tested and thus revealing that you have genuine faith. So he says it's precious and it's beautiful, but look what he says the result will be at the end of verse 7. He says that your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Talking about when Jesus comes, all that God's working in our lives is producing certain things in our lives to when Jesus comes back and we are you know, get to receive all the blessings and so forth, that we, our faith will have a solid testimony of his faithfulness and we'll be able to, to react appropriately to his revelation because of what God has done to our, into, our, into our lives up to this point. So that's what he's saying. We forget there's a moment in time when Jesus comes and we're there and there's a, going to be a reaction. And that reaction is in part based on what he does in our lives now, up until that point. And so that's what he's trying to get their focus on in the future. All that's going on in your life won't be wasted. Even at his revelation, it won't be wasted. Verse 8. Whom having not seen you love. Now this is interesting for Peter because Peter, he has seen Jesus. He lived with Jesus for years. And he's lived for way longer, 25, 30 years, without Jesus. But he knows many that have never actually seen him. He says, you haven't seen him, but you love him. Peter was there when, when Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There was a blessing that we receive by believing, by not seeing, that Peter could never enjoy. 
because he had seen him. Jesus knew there was a greater or, or a, a distinct privilege and blessing associated with having faith even though we haven't seen him. And then he adds, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We do rejoice. We do believe anyway, even though we haven't seen him. The disciples that were on the road to Emmaus were not rebuked because they didn't believe the, 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 the wives or the uh, women's testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. They were rebuked because they didn't believe the word of God. Because there was so much in the word of God related to his prophecies that there was no excuse from them to not believe. They were rebuked. And so he's saying, you haven't seen and, and, and um, you still believe because you have so much evidence to believe. And, and thus you receive joy as a result of it, inexpressible. It's the only time that Greek word's in the Old New Testament. And it just literally means you have no words for it. And that's how we live our lives as believers. That's why people think we're crazy. We're so full of joy and we just, all we want to do is talk about the Lord. Why is that? Because we have this joy in us as a result of all the things he's been speaking about that words cannot fully express. You have to experience it to know exactly what God has for the child of God who puts his faith in Christ. You can't know that unless you experience it. So he says, it's inexpressible joy and full of glory. Verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the end. And I do think of Pastor Chuck today. Because he did finish his race, as he wrote to Timothy. He did finish his race well. He, he completed it. And I'm sure he's heard by now, well done, good and faithful servant. He finished his race well. He saw the end of his faith, the salvation of his soul, in the sense of being with Christ. And so if you're going through a trial today, and even if you're not, this is preemptively designed uh, to help us in the future. As it's been said, you're either coming out of, a trial, out of a trial, you're in a trial, or you're getting ready to go into a trial. That's just our life. It's difficult. And trust me, it's going to get worse in this world before he comes. And he wants to invest in us and preemptively protect us from all these things that can happen in our hearts as a result of discouragement going through trials. He wants all these things to have its needed work in our lives to give us that eternal perspective so we're not moved and we're not shaken. As I close, I want to remind you of the parable of the soils. When Jesus said that there's that cast the seed and is planting and one goes along the path, one goes you know, among thorns, and then he, he's, he talks about one that goes among stony places. And he said, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a little, for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. That's what God wants to prevent in our lives. He doesn't want us stumbled when tribulation comes and persecution comes he wants us to bear under it by his grace and by his power. He doesn't want his children stumbled by hardship. Are you stumbled by the hardship that you're in? Don't be stumbled by it. If you've made mistakes, learn from them. If you haven't made mistakes, thank the Lord that, you know, he's in control of your life. Even if you've made mistakes, thank the Lord he's in control of your life. He's bigger than your circumstances. He's much, you know, Pastor Chuck was always at peace. I worked in that office for two years I was sat in the school of ministry, had him teach many times on Mondays. 
The guy was full of joy. And I can't even begin to express all the responsibilities that, that he had. And he was just full of peace, full of joy, because he knew his God was big. He knew his God was greater than all of his responsibilities. He didn't have to fear. He didn't have to worry. He knew God was in control. And that's our example. And, and of course, greater than that, the Lord Jesus is our example. You ever see Jesus wringing his hands and how are we going to work this out? How are we going to, oh no, this happened? I mean, he, com- he knew that God was in control and God was faithful. So he wants to invest that in our hearts this morning by his spirit. And I pray that he will. Let's pray together. Lord, you do all things well. I pray for any that are suffering right now, that are going through a hard time, persecution or just other difficulty, just lift their heads, Lord. Encourage them by your Holy Spirit that their their inheritance far outweighs any trial that they're in right now and that they are your child and that you do love your children. You take care of your children far greater than we can ever take care of our own children. So I just pray that by your spirit you would bring perspective and encouragement. I pray, Lord, the joy of their salvation would well up in their soul, Lord. And I pray, Lord, you protect them against spiritual warfare. And I pray that you'd move on your body, Lord, to come alongside and be an encouragement. I pray, Lord, you'd help us all to be sensitive to those that are struggling, to not have unsensitive hearts, Lord. You don't have an unsensitive heart. You're sensitive to every need. So help us to be like you. Help us to be taking care of one another. Help us to be other-centered, Lord, and be like you. We want to be like you in being a servant, Lord, and being sensitive to needs. We thank you for the privilege of your word and all that it is. In Jesus' name, amen.